Welcome to Docs in Orbit, a podcast for international, independent, creative nonfiction filmmakers. This is Christina Zachariades. Hello, and welcome to Docs in Orbit, a podcast with a focus on international, contemporary nonfiction cinema. We follow the film festival circuit very closely, exploring modern approaches to filmmaking and curatorial practices. And in this episode, we turn our attention to First Look, an annual showcase of new and innovative international cinema at the Museum of the Moving Image in New York. This year's event will mark the 12th edition of the festival, which is set to take place March 15th to the 19th. And over the course of those five days, More than 30 works from all over the world will be exhibited for the first time in New York at the museum. This includes features, short films, fiction, and nonfiction, as well as forms that fall outside the boundaries of traditional theatrical distribution. Earlier this week, I had the pleasure to sit with Eric Hines, the curator of film at the Museum of the Moving Image in New York, where he heads up year-round programming, as well as the annual First Look Festival. Eric is also a longtime critic and journalist with outlets that have included the New York Times, the Washington Post, Film Comet, Sight and Sound, The Village Voice, and Reverse Shot, where he's been a staff writer since 2003 and writes a column on the art of nonfiction. So, without further ado, here's the conversation. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Good morning to you. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking time. It's a real pleasure to have you on, actually, because you're definitely a voice that champions um, international nonfiction cinema and all of the possibilities. For sure. I mean, that's been a resource for me, your writing and your commentary on films and festivals. So I'm really, I'm really very happy to have you on. I'm happy to be talking to you. Yeah. Yeah. And also to get a little bit. So that's where I wanted to kind of start is just to kind of get a little fuller picture of where it all started for you with regards to developing a relationship with film and then also the culture work that you do. Sure. Well, first off, it's it's great to be here. It's great to talk to you. I feel like it's been a long time coming in terms of us uh, putting our heads together to talk about these things. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful for it. My, you know, my, my story or my kind of trajectory is an odd one uh, in that I think I grew up, you know, crazy about movies like anybody else. Somebody growing up in the 70s and 80s and 90s. But I didn't think of myself as somebody who was going to work in film or had any real access to working in film. To me, it was watching, being a VCR kid, and reading criticism almost instinctively without realizing that's not necessarily a normal thing. So I read the newspapers that we got at home. I always read the film critics and sort of had opinions about their opinions, and I kind of enjoyed it. But again, it wasn't something that I projected myself into. And my school background and most of my 20s were spent writing fiction and working in bookstores, and film remained something on the the periphery, something that I was passionate about, something I cared about, something I spent my extra time on, and going to a lot of movie theaters, often living in New York City as a young person, but not something I, I did professionally. Like the, the first sort of entree into that would be when I uh, got a job as the book buyer at Kim's Video, you know, the, the late uh, video store. And I, I sort of like created a couple book sections for a couple of the stores and 
Um, and those years I met people who worked in criticism. I met people who wanted to be filmmakers. And um, I think that was my first real encounter with fellow travelers who I felt, yeah, I felt like they were colleagues of mine, but they worked in film. And that's not something I really had been able to sort of conceive of for myself. A few years after that, I, I got out of books and found myself unemployed and found myself trying to figure out what the next step in my career might be. And I kind of, you know, convinced myself that with that extra time, I could do something that I never gave myself time to do, which was to write criticism because I'd, I was working full-time jobs and then writing fiction. But this is a moment where I was like, well, what if I make time for both? Because I have time for both. And I actually wrote uh, the brand new website, Reverse Shot, and they responded and asked me to write a review. And I wrote a review and pretty much have been writing consistently ever since. And that was 20 years ago. But when you were writing, you were writing fiction, like you were writing fiction short stories or novels yeah. or, wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I um, for undergrad, I was a, you know, I, I started out in journalism and actually switched over to being a writing major and wrote a novella, wrote some, st wrote some sort of stories, uh, and then started a novel and spent a good portion of my 20s um, uh, unsuccessfully completing a novel while also writing uh, in a somewhat more experimental vein. None of it sort of really uh, getting somewhere, which is a great shame of mine, but part of the reason that it didn't is criticism just kind of, it, it, it clicked into a gear. And my fear was that I would be caught doing something like that that didn't feel creatively fulfilling and, or, you know, intellectually stimulating, whatever. And it, mm -hmm. it was, I, it, it felt mm -hmm. to me like a creative outlet and it felt like a version of who I was as a fiction writer, but just in a very different space in terms of handling language, in terms of, you know, what is possible or not possible with words and all that. So, it, you know, my, my, my energy shifted there. Mm -hmm. And the final step that I'm going to stop talking, talking about myself like that, which is that in 2015, um, I had the opportunity to, to work at the museum and to work with David Schwartz. And I knew that I wanted to go into programming. I had done a little bit of programming, but I hadn't quite realized that it maybe was the next step for me. Um, and it was hard to step away from you know, doing entertainment and film reporting and criticism and slowing that down. And, you know, it felt like a, a life's, uh, whatever it, it was, it was, I was achieving a life's goal by writing for the New York times consistently. And to sort of stop that, to become, to become a programmer, to become a curator was difficult. It took me a little while to adjust to the new way of thinking of, of what I do. And I will say that after seven years of doing this or nearly eight years of doing this, I have, and, and i it's a privilege to be able to do the work that I do at the museum. And um, I'm very proud of the work that I've been doing there um, and feel, you know, uh, again, I'm, I'm being, my, I'm, I'm myself. I feel like I'm saying the same creative person, just doing something quite different than I was last doing and then quite different from where I began. Yeah. 2015 actually coincidentally was the first year that I went to the museum of the moving image. Interesting. It was Interesting. for, I mean, it's embarrassing to say because I've lived in New York since like 2005 <laughs> and it took me 10 years to, you know. You're not alone. But it, it was for Frederick Wiseman's uh, mm. In Jackson Heights yeah. that, yeah. that kind of took me out there. But, um, but yeah, and I, I think I can also relate a lot to this idea of finding the creativeness or the, the artistic process and doing something that is not necessarily always considered to be. Yeah art, you know, like film criticism or yeah. working in support of films or, you know, it, it took me also a while to realize like it's all culture work. 
yeah, yeah. And Reverse Shot is also a publication that is supported by the Museum of the Moving Image, right? It's It started independent, um, and it was independent for, I would say, a good 15 years or so. Um, and then the last six, seven, eight years or so, it's been associated with the museum. And, and it, it still operates quite independently, but um, over the last couple of years, there's been a little bit more, you know, as the museum continues to evolve and change and do more things, it makes sense to have reverse shot be kind of part of that that growth and evolution but it but it remains still you know founded edited and run by Michael Kresge and Jeff Reichert and they do that you know independent I mean Michael Kresge is indeed an employee of the museum now which is great because he gets actually paid to do this work for those for the first 18 years of reverse shot's existence he you know he did that entirely on his own time and and dime but yeah the two of them really work still as a unit making reverse shot happen. So there's only so much at the museum we can take ownership or claim on behalf of reverse shot. It's really, it's really about those guys making it happen. Ah, okay. Independent. It was independent for, for a really long time. Wow. For a really long time. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and yeah. And so let's talk about the museum of the moving image. So it's, it's located in Astoria, which is yeah. known for a really diverse, local mm -hmm. population, a lot of immigrants, a lot of Eastern European. And I see that supported really, really robustly in the programming throughout the year at MOMI. But can you tell me a little bit about the uh, institutional goals for the Museum of the Moving Image and yeah. how does it see itself and the role <laughs> that it plays for the yeah. community and also internationally? That's a really important and hard to entirely tackle question. So, I mean, how do I approach this? I mean, the museum has been around since, uh, I mean, it was founded before the, it was in the building that it is in now. It was founded next door, the Kaufman Astoria Studios. And that was like the early eighties. And they finally moved across the street to the museum, the place that it is now. Um, I think like 85, 86, opened 87, something somewhere, somewhere in there. And I think its DNA is that studio. The DNA is actually, it was founded in the Kaufman Astoria Studios, you know, formerly the Paramount Studios, which was, you know, I think 102 years ago. So a lot of the, the holdings of the museum originally came from the studio. And it is a, is a museum dedicated to, you know, telling the story of the moving image and history, contemporary, you know, it's really not a place for getting into the genre of the movies. It's how are movies made and who are the people who make the movies and how they evolved over time and how has that evolved into film and visual art and et cetera. And, and it's a place of objects, uh, not of, you know, there's not a film archive. It's a place of, of and so like there, there are galleries there, um, permanent exhibitions as well as changing exhibitions that kind of take in the full purview of the of the moving image, all the things that that could be. And I, I think that I would hazard to say that because it had that origin associated with the studio, um, it's been an evolution for it to be more community minded, which does not mean that it is not like a, it's a it's a it's a city uh, museum and it has been a host to school kids from day one. Um, and it's a great, robust education program there. So a lot of school kids, their first museum they go to is Museum of Moving Image and their understanding of film comes from you know, de dealing with educator, ed educators in the museum of the moving image, there are generations of people my age and even older who remember going there as a student. So that's always been the case. But I think in terms of the gallery spaces and the programming, it's been a, an evolution to 
think a little bit more about where it's located, where the communities um, that surround us, um, rather than just this is the kind of international, you know, New York cinephile circuit of people going to see great films. Obviously, that's New York is 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 very special that there is a robust cinephile community, and you. Um, they show up and they come out and it's competitive and it's amazing that there's so many venues that show 35 millimeter prints and archival prints and do intelligent programming. And that is, uh, we do, we, we hope we do that too. But I think that being in Queens, not being in Manhattan or the kind of hip parts of Brooklyn changes things a little bit. And I think it's been a good thing, at least seeing the, over the years that I've been there, seeing us be mindful about, you know, who lives there, who lives nearby and seeing, our audience shift away from being reliant on folks getting on a train and coming out to Queens on a weekend and more, um, there's a core audience of people who live around there, you know, whether they're members or not, um, they're, you know, we're, we're a go-to place for some people. Um, and so to make that happen, you have to be aware of, you know, this sort of nameless group of people you might call a community or a neighborhood would will want to see and how do you bring them in and that's always kind of a, a a give take right where you're trying to anticipate what might bring people in and but then you and and also which is a much harder thing how do you communicate and message that you're doing it to that community and that's a that's a challenge for any organization it's a challenge for ours too at the same time as how do we once we start getting an audience challenge them and introduce things um, that they may not have known that they wanted to see, um, which of course is, a, I mean, as a, as a curator, that's, you live for that. You want to be able to feel like you have something to share and, and to have that kind of dialogue with people when you're introducing them to things. Um, and we have uh, 300, we're open three all year round. You know, we, we, we show movies Friday, Saturday, Sunday, as well as some weeknights uh, at times, but, um, over the course of a year, we'll show hundreds and hundreds of films. It's a lot of ground to cover. So it creates an opportunity for a diverse program of thinking of who's out there, what films are out there. Over the course of a year, what kind of ground, what, what, how do we, what do we want to reflect about the contemporary film scene or the history of film? But at the same time, like that diverse community to me is an invitation to invite a diverse crowd of people to everything we do. I'm not the sort who wants to, you know, start a number of different series that are all like targeted for a particular community only. Even if something is like the Greeks, we have a monthly a Greek series called Always on Sunday and a robust number of that crowd is is Greek and that's fantastic. At the same time, we want the rest of the of the community of Queens and New York City and our like passionate cinephile audience to find entree there. We want them to feel like there's a film there that they might want to see as well. And then maybe they'll get into Greek cinema or maybe they'll just like that particular film, but the, the door was open for them. And the, you know, the messaging around it made it feel like this wasn't, they weren't excluded from that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's just sort of the way I, I think about it because I'd rather not have a place where there is all these fragments of community rather than one community that could possibly gather uh, for a particular screening. Cause to me, that's what I love about the movies. That's what I love about, mm -hmm. you know, the you know, the cliched fallen, you know, Christian of myself. Just like, you know, of course, I want to go into this temple of, of, of art, and I want to sit next to somebody I don't know and have a profound experience next to that person. That is a big part of why I think theaters still exist, 
And so I don't want to only go to a movie and feel like people who have the exact same opinions as I do and the same taste in films are, are there. No, oh, I mean, it's a moving image. It's a moving experience for sure. Yeah. And yeah. not yeah. sort of feeding how you say communities, how they identify with their own sense of community, but also mm-hmm. how they can find themselves in others. Right. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, right. that's it. So in terms of institutional goals, it's delivered on that for me. <laughs> for me, <laughs> I'm thinking about Murina, which was the opening film last year at Malmi First Look. And yeah. just like yeah. incredible. I think that was also its New York premiere. Was it not? It was. Yeah. It was its New York City premiere. It, did, it had a Hamptons showing uh, the previous year. But yes, it was New York City premiere. Yeah. So yeah, so let's go to First Look then. Because it's an annual showcase mm-hmm. for this type of new cinema. And it's also very much a place of discovery for New York audiences, but also for filmmakers to find New York audiences as well, because you bring in so many people. And so it does have this social aspect to it, not just as an exhibition, as a place where you go and watch films, but as a place where you mingle with the makers and... And yeah. it's been around for. This is the this is the twelfth year. Yeah. So yeah. so yeah. So what are the origins of First yeah. Look? Well, it started twelve years ago when the former chief uh, curator of the museum, David Schwartz, was there, and he was working with two other folks who were on staff at the museum, who are, are extremely well regarded folks to this day, Dennis Lim and Rachel Rakes, um, and so the three of them founded First Look, and they, it started in in January and it was in January for the first nine or so years of his existence, eight or nine years of his existence, you know, as a kind of like first of the year, it's always been compact. It used to be two weekends. Now it's one long weekend, but it's always been compact and kind of a survey, a very international survey of great films that somehow didn't have a New York premiere yet. They somehow didn't fit in, in somebody else's slate. And so they were amazing movies. And it was almost like the first look was this, oh my God, I can't believe this didn't show in elsewhere. It's so great that it's showing here. Um, And then I think it's really in the last several years when we moved to March and kind of put ourselves a little more in the festival landscape, you know, rather than being kind of the last hurrah before Sundance sets off the new calendar. Now that we're in March and we're in five days, we've leaned into kind of what you were describing. We've leaned into the idea of if you're gonna have a festival that takes place entirely in one building, in one institution, in a neighborhood like Astoria, Queens, it should be approachable. Like why pretend otherwise? Like it should be that, you know, audiences and filmmakers for those days are just, they're there. And if they're there, what can we do together? And so it's what we just started doing works in progress. So we first spent the first three days of the festival you know, looking at films that are in progress or talking to filmmakers about the process of, of, of something they have made or their, their practice and have that roll into the evenings and then into the weekend where we're seeing new films together and it moves, uh, the, the conversation, the kind of energy moves throughout those days, but it does stay in these kind of fixed locations in, which I think is a little bit unique in terms of, you know, there are other, you know, festivals that exist in, in single institutions, um, but usually there are venues that are a little bit further flung and the, the festival is big enough that it requires that, where this is actually remains compact enough that we're still able to think every single day about what that cohort of people might be doing and how they might be persuaded to do that altogether rather than running off to somewhere else in New York City, which... Again, us being in Astoria and not in Manhattan or Brooklyn means that there's a better chance that we can kind of 
create our own little bubble there for those days. Mm-hmm. And that bubble is around less than 30 films, is it? It's Yeah, it's 19, 19 features and another like 10, 15 shorts, I think, something along those lines. So yeah, pretty small. Which is manageable. I mean, also for an audience, yeah. you don't get overwhelmed. It's really very curated. Yeah. Are you curating throughout the year? Because you don't. You also don't take submissions. It's more solicited. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So we don't have a submissions process. Um, people do contact us and send us things, and we consider things that are sent to us. But yeah, it, we we basically all year long. You know, because we're looking for films to program all year round. We have numerous series that uh, we're looking to program. We're looking to program retrospectives and thematic things. You know, for for new films in particular, like New Adventures in Nonfiction, which which I put together, and Infinite Beauty, the Manasa filmmaker series that Farih Hazaman puts together. Those are are often like new film dependent. So you're 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 encountering that work at festivals over the course of the year. But first look is always a a consideration. The entire time, you know, so we're accumulating films, but we don't officially really invite films until I would say late summer, early fall. Um, and then we start because I, I just feel funny asking filmmakers to commit like a year or half a year in advance to something when they don't know what's going to happen in the meantime. You know, I don't want them to feel committed to us and then they really want to be able to do something else and they feel obliged to us. So I'd like to wait a little bit into the into the fall, like I said, uh, to start inviting films. And then we look to really just finalize it by mid late January. So things get really busy mid, you know, like October, November uh, mm. through through January. Yeah. And you, you didn't mention competitive earlier that it is New York City is a very competitive sure, space. Sure. I imagine there's lots of elbowing, like, no, I want, I want this film, or, <laughs> yeah. or there's a lot of, yeah, navigating that. I don't want to, I don't want to sound like above such things or naive about things, how it works either, because I'm, I'm in it. But I really, I, I tried as much as I possibly can. Obviously, I'm working for an institution. I'm working for a festival. I want it to be as good as possible. I want great works uh, to come to us, but. I, I'm just very filmmaker minded. Like I said, I really don't want to compete with other institutions and to do so at the disservice of a filmmaker. Like these, it's really hard to make these movies. It's really hard to get them out there. It's really hard for them to make decisions about where to go and what the best venue is, Uh, you know? So um, I'd much rather lose a movie and have them regret not going with us (laughs) than win a movie and then regret them that they went with us. You know, so like, um, that said, we because of that, I actually try to communicate with other institutions in New York as much as possible about what they're thinking, about what their priorities are, um, and either either send an invitation out and say, "Take your time. Here's when we need to know," or 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 wait and and let some things play out. You know. That said, I think there's competition, but there's also when I mean, you look at the landscape, it's not like. Um, we're all the same. We all have some different different missions and we all have different specialties. We all have different th- ways that we lean in terms of things we're attracted to. Us being a very small, compact festival, but also like we're small and compact, but we're not small and compact in terms of what our interest and purview is. You know, we are, we are narratives and documentary. We bring in genre films. We, um, you know, we, we can lean very experimental. We can also lean very much narrative. So with that, it's not like we're, necessarily picking over the same group of films Mm -hmm. um and having the entire world to choose from too 
I don't know. Like I, I feel like we're not. There's no shortage of things we could show. <laughs> the films that have not shown in New York, and you have 19 features or 20 features or whatever it winds up being, there are so many great films we are not showing, mm-hmm. because you know we're looking to sort of cover as much ground as we can, and as a result, that that means that there's plenty of films we're not we're not showing. So yeah, I mean there are other festivals somewhat around the same time as First Look that get some great films that I would love I would love to show. Um, I'd like to think it's the other way around too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a great attitude. And also this um, notion of working with other institutions. It's I remembered last year, Momi f- was uh, hosting Prismatic Grounds opening night. And so right, you do work right. with, a, yeah, it's like you're very, very compatible with, um, with other programming in the city yeah. and offering space yeah. for that. And, you know, and we, for the first time ever, we did some New York Film Festival screenings and I was That's a little right. bit cautious. I was cautious about that, but ultimately I think in some, in some ways I feel like with programming, as, as I think about it, your priorities are the films and the filmmakers and your audience. Right. And I think that was a situation where like the, that we could host those films and do that for our audience made it entirely mm-hmm. worthwhile. So it became less about competing with another institution and hosting their festival and more like, this is our opportunity to show films at this particular moment that our audience maybe wouldn't access otherwise. So it's entirely worth it. Um, and yeah, something like Prismatic Ground, where like we're very supportive of that festival and it, you know, it doesn't feel like there's competition there. And other, in fact, I feel like that's another group of films that have a, a platform that didn't exist a few years prior. So if we can help in any way, we're, you know, we're into it. Yeah. So I wonder, was there, are you allowed to say, is there like a, the first <laughs> film that uh, first look this this year's program invited invited in because I when I was talking with um, yeah. Emily Burgess from Visions de Riel, she wouldn't tell me, but she mentioned that there are some <laughs> stones in the program, or you know, there's gravitational forces that. And how she described it was in this way, it's like almost kind of yeah, it was really cool. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering if there's like a magic hocus pocus happening. <laughs> I don't think it's a magic hocus pocus. I do think that I mean Edo Choi, who's the associate curator of film, and I go to go to Cannes. There are a couple of films that I fell in love with there, and if they didn't wind up at New York Film Festival, you know, and if they didn't seem destined for new directors or something like that, then you know we start getting a little excited, you know, because not so much that we want to win, but we're like, oh, this would be amazing if we got to show this film. And I think that there's two that wound up being the case, which was Rodeo which is a film that I really fell in love with out of Cannes, which we're showing as our kind of Thursday night showcase screening. And, and Tori and Lakita, the Dardenne Brothers film. Mm-hmm. Those are two films that we saw at Cannes and um, we were kind of hoping, you know, or at least had our eyes on the, the possibility that um, they'd stick around. But then there's another film from even before then, which is Silent Love, which is a film that I saw at Millennium Docks Against Gravity, uh, which takes place, or it starts just before Cannes. And, and, I, and I was in Warsaw for that part of the festival. And that's a film that I did not know anything about. And it was not necessarily the most talked about hyped Polish film in the festival, but I was just really knocked back mm-hmm. by it. And as were other people that I knew at the festival who were just walked into that screening and like, what is, this is a really special film. So that's honestly, that's probably the first one we invited because I knew that we were gonna kind of forge ahead with a collaboration with Millennium Dexcan's Gravity this year and try to showcase a few of their films within our festival. So 
Yeah, that's those. Those are probably the first three. I don't know if those are the stone. I don't know if I think of it that way. I mean, because we are not a submissions festival, and we're also not really a a committee voting by committee festival in terms of the programmers. I feel very strongly that if any of us feel really strongly for a film, I don't want us to kind of weigh that down with consensus. Um, so there are some films in here that are just a passion for one of the three of us, as well as a lot of films that all three of us think are great. You know, I'm not saying that, that there are films that any of us dislike. That's not true at all. Cause again, there's so few films, you're not going to waste time on that. There's a quality to this, that maybe this makes the festival into something that is maybe a little bit, uh, more oddly shaped, if you will, because we'll invite some films early that we just want. And then that winds up becoming, oh, well, that's 25% of the festival, or that's nearly 50% of the festival. What does that mean? What shape is it taking? Mm -hmm. And then we start paying attention to what, what have we not covered? What have we, what are we still looking for? You know, what, you know, do we want, do we need levity here? Do we need like what, what, you know, what, what sort of, what will help round out what we're doing? And then it starts taking a little bit more shape, but the early stages are more like, um, what are we really excited about? What is something brand new? And, uh, and, and, and you kind of just start from there, film by film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And silent love. I did, I caught that at uh visual Real. I think it was there as well. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's a remarkable film. Yeah. So Fremont is the opening night film and it's also playing, it's paired with away, which is a short film yeah. Um, yeah. by Ruslan Fedotov. Who's also yeah. who's a, an alumni of the Doc Nomads program? We went through the same film ah, school. Okay, so this okay. This is really great representation for Doc Nomads <laughs> <laughs> to be opening. Very good. The the short film opening night. Um, well, yeah, and and you've seen away. Yeah, at IFA. Yeah. Yeah. At IFA, yeah. It's, that's where I saw it too. Yeah. It's really, I mean, it's it's incredible. I'm so I'm so surprised that he was able to make this film in such a short period of time because I remember. It's it takes so it takes place in in Budapest. So it's a semester uh -huh. film. It's not even his thesis film. It's it's just wow. it's an exercise, a semester exercise. Remarkable. <laughs> it's really remarkable. Yeah. I mean, what a great way to use it to, to pursue an exercise. I think in terms of like to to make a record of that particular moment and those particular people going through what they were going through. Yeah, very impressive. Yeah. So just for those listening that might that haven't seen it, it's about um, it's about teenage refugees it's also like this beautiful couple that um from ukraine that are um that are in budapest and helping with the influx of other of other children refugees coming from ukraine and it also has this beautiful way of showing not just their approach to handling this very delicate situation and their dedication and devotion to it uh, but also the way that the local community is reacting to it, you know, some some that are um, anti-Russian, but then also some pro some pro-Russian um, sentiments yeah. there as well. So it's and, and just this gaze that he has on children is mm -hmm. so gentle and touching and moving. Um, yeah. It's for some reason it, it feels like a difficult film to watch, even though it's just so beautiful yeah. Yeah. and it it's cares a lot and I think maybe that's why it's just so sensitive that it's mm -hmm. like difficult to, it's difficult to watch yeah. he has uh you know he works as a cinematographer on other projects as well and you know, the, the, his film from last year where are we headed which is you know filmed entirely in Moscow subway system um has you know they're both gorgeously shot and he's a really talented uh, person with a camera but I think but you're right there's 
a way in which he holds a gaze and exactly what he's looking at and how he looks that feels um, it doesn't feel, I, w- I wouldn't say it's, it's not voyeuristic and it's not invasive, but it is sensitive and it's sensitive to the point of it's bracing. <laughs> it's bracing um, what uh, the perspective that you're able to have um, with his camera. Um, and I think it's really beautifully handled with the way um, because um, these are li- in, in a city like Budapest, these are literally people you walk past and you don't want to spend too much time thinking about what they're going through. Um, and the, the perspective is reversed, really. You're kind of looking out at the city from their perspective instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's paired with Fremont, and this one I don't know much about. And so much of the program, I should say, it's so much of a discovery for me. Like I was, Good. when it was, an, I was refreshing the website, waiting for the <laughs> announcements, like waiting for the list of films. And then I was like, I don't know any of these. <laughs> so um, That could be good or bad. No, it's amazing. It's, it's really, I'm yeah. very excited. It's, it's, very, it's very exciting for, um, for discovery. Yeah. So, but can you talk a little bit about the opening night film, Fremont? Sure. Yeah, so Fremont um, I saw at, uh, just at Sundance. You know, so there's uh, kind of new for us. There's three Sundance films uh, in, in the selection. Um, and uh, Fremont was at the, in the next category. Um, and it is, you know, I, it, I, I just love this film. Like I, uh, um, I, I, when I really love a film, sometimes I get a little inarticulate, which is why it's better when I write because um, I challenge myself to do a better job. But I, this film, um, it's a, it's a, it, it has this sort of quality of being an, uh, you know, American independent film from the seventies or eighties. It's, black and white it's got a sort of square frame uh and uh you and there's a kind of a somewhat somewhat stilted um theatrical quality to how it's blocked um it has a little bit of you know again this is just to sort of give people a picture there's a a little early Jarmusch quality to it um and uh and if you were to rather than sort of like shrug that off I'll take that seriously for a second that quality I think um is something that's consciously played with um in that you know instead of something like stranger in paradise um where you know there's there's sort of three outsiders but one being this uh immigrant female um who's probably you know kind of the more the most peripheral character in terms of our getting to know them um this one's sort of centered by um an immigrant female who uh is um kind of recent to the U.S. and living in an Afghan, Afghani uh, refugee community outside San Francisco in the town of Fremont. Um, and instead, I mean, this is all the buildup for something that is far more a comedy <laughs> than the description would say. Like it is, um, it's got a real deadpan comedy quality. You've got a, a lead character who's a, a beautiful female who is the kind of deadpan figure that is often like the Bill Murray or the, you know, whatever name you're kind of deadpan uh, American actor, um, you know, or even like somebody like a Buster Keaton, whatever, like she is placid most of the time, not super expressive. Uh, and yet every little sort of like slight expression that she gives winds up having a strong effect emotionally and also humorously. Um, and, you know, and like it's filled with these um, peripheral, you know, or supporting uh, characters most of them fellow immigrants, some or not all Afghani, and they all like, have this incredible life and vibrancy and personality. And like humor comes out of that too, because it's just the kind of, um, a, there, there's something 
deeply sad, but also just kind of, um, uh, yeah, just, just humorous about the, this, the, the life that they're leading, the predicament that they're leading and an awareness within their own perspectives of, of how strange this life might be and how strange these environments might be. It is, it is a very special film and, and even sort of like in the last act becomes a very unlikely um, love story. It sounds beautiful. Um, yeah, it's really great. But there's something about uh, a story of this quality, of this tone that takes the experience of, uh, of an immigrant's experience that does not, it's not a melodrama, you know, and it's not um, uh, a gritty narrative, a gritty drama either. Like it allows it to have the other sort of uh, creative expression. Nice. Um, <laughs> I'm realizing those are, those are fictions. <laughs> and, you know, just kind of a little bit confined by the title of the podcast being very Yeah, of course. No, I, I was happy to talk about them, but I was wondering that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's, um, so let's give a little love to some, some of the nonfiction sure. films. We talked a little bit about Silent Love already. Um, yeah. yeah, so I'll let, I'm, I'll let you pick. I mean, there's a film that we're showing that will have just premiered it True False, which is The Taste of Mango, um, which is by Chloe Abrahams. Uh, and there's a film that um, I've been tracking for a little while and have really loved what it was becoming and love, and, and, and love uh, Chloe as a filmmaker. And um, this is, a, 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 this is a, a real handheld home uh, production where it's basically Chloe filming her mother and her grandmother who kind of comes in and out of the picture. Her family's based in and in London, and, you know, her grandmother comes from Sri Lanka, which is where her mother was born. Yeah, it's it's sort of a portrait of their relationships, a portrait mostly of her mother and her mother's struggle to deal with some trauma that she suffered and that she feels great distance from her mother regarding, um, and Chloe trying to navigate their relationship while also understanding what, where her own perspective might be in and, and, and how she might fit in in terms of a third generation of carrying some of, of, of what these women carry. And uh, Chloe has a way of shooting that it's very inviting because it's very home movie-like. It feels like very much you are right there. You are, you know, this is a, a camera that's being picked up on the spot while a difficult conversation is going to be, is going to be had. At the same time, she has this way of within those shots, within those sequences, using the camera for very expressive, to expressive ends, where it'll become abstract or it'll become very close up to the point of kind of going beyond intimacy into something something else, like as, as if the camera's trying to get inside somewhere mm. and you can't. And so there's, an, there's a pronounced sense of how far can you actually go? How much can you possibly understand? Like metaphorically and aesthetically, She's doing things with kind of home movie shooting that I hadn't quite seen before. Yeah, it's a, it's a film I think could work if it if it if even even as just a close portraiture it would work, but it more than that it also actually really goes somewhere and the, the places that it goes and the ways places that their their relationships go um, is something to watch. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And does she use a lot of archive as well, or is it more just like diary? A little bit of archive. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, home home movie archive, like archive okay. of like her parents' wedding and, you know, some previous, it's mostly things captured with her camera. Yeah. Any other ones you want to highlight? 
Well, in terms of documentaries, I would say like the river's not a border. I don't know if you saw this one. I think that may have, uh, I forget if that was visions or cinema de real. Um, and, uh, you know, that's another, uh, African film. Um, and, uh, it's by, a Senegalese filmmaker, Alessandro Diago. Um, and, and this is sort of a film I was really happy to see and to program because, um, I find personally that I'm, even though I'm somebody who in some ways cut my teeth writing about nonfiction cinema as being this kind of infinite space for creativity and formal innovation, uh, these days, not that I'm turned off by such things, but to see something that is so straightforward about what it is and what it is doing, I find kind of thrilling, um, or a newly thrilling. And this film is very much, it is a, you know, it is, it is a, uh, a film, uh, that's on kind of, um, among a group of, uh, Mauritanians, um, you know, on the, on the border with Senegal. And there's, um, there's, there's a history of conflict there and there's a history of kind of, um, strict, uh, one side or the other. Like there's a, there's a, there's a river there and there's, you can see people on the other side and there's a real strong sense of what you're allowed, like who you are and where you're allowed to belong. And, uh, this, and there's a group of people that basically like gather by the riverside to share and talk about, um, the challenges and what needs to change. And it winds up just being an opportunity for people to speak and to have themselves heard. And you, and, and when, when a, when a person begins to speak, they don't cut, <laughs> we listen to them. We listen to them talk. Um, and there's something very Wiseman-esque about this, except Wiseman is shaping, you know, in his own brilliant way, kind of even it's, it seems like something is um, just being kind of, uh, it's something just playing out in front of you, but he's shaping it into um, a scene and shaping it into something that, with his own intentions behind it, this is something that it's really much honoring the speaker. And when somebody begins to speak, you give them a chance to get what's on their mind out. Um, and as much as the people by the riverside are there to listen, you're, the camera's there to listen as well. Um, and so I just found it actually quite thrilling. Yeah, it also sounds like a really important document too of their it is a it is very much an important document yes yeah. and I think intended to be so but not intended to only exist in that way um you know I think that um there's an element of witness there and an element of documentation and in order to succeed I think it um it needs to then be put out into the world um so I, and I think it works as something that that all of us out in the world um uh, can appreciate I had no idea about this the, the border, the demarcation, what happened between the border of, uh, in Senegal and so that. And I think that a film like that is so specific to that place, but as a result of it being so specific, but also so considered and not packaged, I think that it, it winds up rhyming with other experiences. Mm -hmm. And I think that you can see your community in this community, even though, even if your community is so different um, and so far away, there's something about the specificity of what they're encountering. Um, that I think is accessible. Mm -hmm. I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about Jill Uncredited, which I, I noticed mm. is on the program. And for me, this is such a beautiful, and I know this yeah. is like a banal word to use, but it is a really beautiful film. I mean, just I agree. 
such a short film, but I had so much reaction to it. It, it was kind of phenomenal. Um, yeah, I love it too. Anthony Eng is the filmmaker, yeah. Yeah, I've not seen any of his other works, but I, I noticed that Charlie Shackleton is the produ- is a producer on it, and Charlie Shackleton, yes. of course, um, works a lot with archives and really mm-hmm. wonderfully, and, and Jill Uncredited is a short film that uh, compiles clips from Jill, who is... Jill Goldston. Jill, Jill yeah. Goldston, yeah. Who is um, yeah. an extra, basically, on so, on, like, so many, so many productions throughout so many so many years and so the entire film is just you finding her in all these things but there's also this emotional progression that happens and what they do with music is really excellent and when they decide to use the the audio that is sourced from from the from the actual film versus these beautiful compositions I mean (laughs) and it makes you just uh look at footage differently it's the sort you know it's it's a where, um, you know, this is somebody who's never really central to anything that she's ever been in. She's peripheral, she's in the background, she's at the side of the frame, and there are some moments where you have to do the work of finding where she is, and other moments this film kind of subtly, like, guides you toward her. Um, And something about that interplay of you finding, you being pointed out, there's something about her emerging in front of your eyes and sort of seeing her at different times of her life and in different costumes and you know and I don't know about you but I'm kind of creating these like is is she trying to like does she know this is her one moment so she's giving something extra so that she makes the film like what's what is she actually doing in this scene how aware is she um is is she actually looking to yeah she's looking to draw attention to herself which is usually not that person's job um just fascinated and it made me at least, I think the next couple of films I saw after seeing Jill Uncredited, it was an 18-minute short film, I was watching for this, I was watching for people in the in the frames of of other films, you know, wondering who these other people are, what are their lives, you know, have I seen this person in another film, uh-huh. you know, I don't know. It's a, it's, yeah. it's, it, it, it's, it is the sort of film that can help you um, look at films differently. It's a fun, yeah, it's like a fun game almost. It becomes this fun game of trying to find her. You know, like at first you start to realize, okay, you you realize instantly what the film is going to be about. And then there's this game that start that you start to play of like trying to find her and um, and you feel very rewarded for it, you know, and in uh, her, all these different expressions. But for, for me also, there was this moment where I started also realizing the the gender role that she's playing and then sure. all all of these like women in the background roles right so like nurses caretakers you know housekeepers and um and how ignored those roles are you know and so so then it also kind of has this i mean it's very conceptually forward right like it's you know it's yeah. constructed in this way but it it also it it just really has a strong thing to say that isn't so conceptual that's also very very real and yeah. yeah, and I wondered too. It was like, how did this, how did this film come together? Because at first, I at first I was like, oh, what an eye for the director to be, you know, kind of discovering her. But then I was like, no, 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 no. This is fully informed. He met her, <laughs> and they were like, you know, got the filmography, got her filmography, and then just went to town with it. Yeah, it, it feels like a nice companion piece too, because Anthony works with Charlie on a lot of Charlie's films, um, The Afterlight, I, you know, the, which was the opening night of 
prismatic ground last year i feel like it's in conversation with the afterlight too where in that film it's you know this meticulous construction of all this footage um from around the world and from the entirety of film history to kind of like approximate a narrative this is sort of like the opposite where it's one person in all this footage um you know being repurposed for for us to notice her rather than to add up to some other narrative yeah i mean because it's not like this is a new idea it's not like you know going and using um scenes from films and putting them together and creating something different is is new at all but this felt and our and afterlight also felt very very innovative and this also feels really really innovative so it's so it's surprising. For me, it also really shows n- not just a love for cinema, but a, a real stretch mm. of the possibilities of what it, mm-hmm. of what it can do in, in the most simplest ways. So, yeah. Um, yeah. so I think my real question is, will she be at first look? <laughs> will she, unfortunately, she will not be. She uh, was, I know, I know, I know, I wish. She was in Berlin, um, as was Anthony, but my neither apparently are, because it's playing a true-false a couple weeks before oh. us, and neither of those festivals are they coming. Unfortunately, oh, okay. I wish they were. Well, yeah, we'll have to we'll have to watch out for her in the corner of every other film <laughs> I, that we watch from now on. Instead, well, I'm looking forward to the festival <laughs> and partaking in all that will be on offer at first I'm look. Looking forward and, to having you there. Yeah, it'll be fun. And thank you for for your time, and also for all of the work that you and your team did to put together this amazing offering for for audiences in New York. Thank you, Christina. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. For links referenced in this episode and updates on upcoming screenings, visit docsinorbit.com. This podcast was produced by Christina Zachariades in Brooklyn and Eileen Gokman in Switzerland with music by Naeem Makhboub in Stockholm. Special thanks to Sylvia Savagian. And if you like what you just heard, please be sure to subscribe and rate and review so that more film lovers can find us.